Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to celebrate the matrimony of Hosea and Goma. I'm so glad that you are here. First question, gotta get it out the way. Does anyone have any reason why these two shouldn't be married? Um, we all know she's a prostitute, right? I do. Um, we all know she's kind of still gonna be a prostitute, right? <coughs> you know you're probably gonna have to be a single parent, basically. Um, you know, she's probably gonna have children with other men. I do. You, you sure? Can't take it back, so in the past, uh, I, guess, I guess we're doing this thing. So there you go. Oh, can't make a wife out of I'll never find a word to say. I'm sorry, but I'm scared to be someone just jumped on the stream right now and was like, What in the Jerry Springer is going on right now? And amazingly, this story of Hosea is in the Bible. I'm not making it up. We're actually gonna read it. And uh, if you've been tracking with us, this year we've been in the Minor Prophets. Uh, it has made up about half of our preaching content and our schedule for the year. And it's been speaking deeply to us. Because what is so amazing about prophetic writing, especially when you get into prophetic writing in the Old Testament, a, a prophet actually just simply means someone who will speak on uh, behalf of another. And so even in the Old Testament, you had human prophets, as in Moses was a, a big leader, but he struggled to speak. And so God said, I'll give you Aaron, your brother, to be your spokesperson, to be your prophet, to speak on your behalf. Now we get into these minor prophets, and they're called minor not because they're insignificant or less valuable, but literally they are just the smaller books when it comes to the prophetic writings. And as we have tracked through, uh, I'm so excited to jump into Hosea. This is gonna be a one-hit wonder. We're only doing one week in it. And so my goal, uh, as we get into probably the craziest story in probably all of the Old Testament, um, God literally asking a man to marry a prostitute, uh, a man to be faithful to an unfaithful wife. I really do believe that as in that time and space, he, get, he brought a message to the nation of Israel. Because it's God's word, it's gonna have an impact and a significance for us today. It's gonna speak to us. My big goal is that you would, in this one message, get the whole picture of what's going on in, in Hosea, but be able to apply it to your life today understanding that God's Word speaks to us deeply, that His truth actually will change us from the inside out, and that the craziest story we'll ever get to in probably all of the Old Testament actually is the greatest love story. And it's crazy to think how, how this could ever be a love story. But when you start to see it through the eyes of God, through His heart for His people, it can't be seen any other way. Why don't you pray with me and then we're gonna jump into this. Father God, I wanna pray right now in these few moments we get to share, as we are jumping in, gathering like this, that your spirit would speak to us deeply, that you would meet with us, that you would tangibly presence yourself amongst us as your people. Lord, you met your people in a time and space and spoke through uh, men, you spoke through prophets, you spoke to hearts, you spoke to situations. But Lord, the goal was to bring your heart through to your people. The goal was to bring your restoration to broken people. Lord, humanity is so in desperate need of your presence, of your spirit, of your power. 
And so Lord, it's my prayer as we dive into this, that your truth will change us, that we would again realize the depth of your love because we see it in the midst of this story, but Lord, we feel it right now in in, in the depths of our heart. Lord, it's my prayer that you'd be over this time, that you'd be over my words, that these are not my words, but they're yours, and that you would speak deeply to each one of us. And everybody said, amen. I said prophets are those guys who very often would talk the talk. They would very often be the ones who were uh, speaking on behalf of God to the people. But there were some prophets that were unique and none more so than Hosea because he was actually called to walk the walk. God said, hey, you will actually be a physical illustration of my message and my truth to my people. And so I'm gonna attack this and I've given this message the title, Boundless Faithful Love because I want love to be the preeminent thing you hear through this story. And the first big headline I wanna uh, start with is this unforgettable family. Unforgettable family. We're gonna read in Hosea chapter one. And this is the story. It goes like this. From verse two. When the Lord first spoke through Hosea, the Lord said to Hosea, go and take for yourself a wife of whoredom and have children of whoredom. For the land commits great whoredom by forsaking the Lord. So he went and took Goma, the daughter of Deblaim, and she conceived and bore him a son. And the Lord said to him, call his name Jezreel, for in just a little while I will punish the house of Jehu for the blood of Jezreel, and I will put an end to the kingdom of the house of Israel. And on that day, I will break the bow of Israel in the valley of Jezreel. She conceived again and bore a daughter. And the Lord said to him, call her name, no mercy. In the Hebrew, it's lo ruhama. For I will no more have mercy on the house of Israel to forgive them at all. But I will have mercy on the house of Judah and I will save them by the Lord their God. I will not save them by bow or by sword or by war or by horses or by horsemen. When she had weaned no mercy, she conceived and bore a son. And the Lord said, call his name, not my people. In the Hebrew, it's Lohami. For you are not my people and I am not your God. I know there's a lot of people who've been having babies. Um, there's some great suggestions for kids' names there. If, you've, if you're keen, no mercy is available, not my people is available. These are names that you really wanna grab a hold of. Everybody's going with Matthew and Karen and all these things. Um, but. Uh, It's a crazy story. And I know I've been poking some fun at it because I understand it's awkward when we start to get into topics like and words like prostitution and whoredom. But I do believe that when you look at Hosea and Gomer and their story is tracked through basically the first three chapters of this book, what we find is God saying to Hosea that you will be my picture to my people that actually this is a a far deeper truth than just the life you will live. It's a far deeper truth than the family you will have. The message and the truth I have for my people will come through you. And I wanna put a dose of reality as much as we can joke and jest. A dose of reality, because I think sometimes when we get to stories in scripture, we forget that these were real people in real moments at real times. That actually they would have had to live this life. It's a crazy story, a crazy life, but it actually was day to day lived out by Hosea. And so a little bit of a dose of reality is realizing that he would take a wife who would be a prostitute and continue in her profession even after their wedding. That every single day she would be going out to do her profession, to continue on her desires outside of the home. And so you can imagine there would have been many nights for Hosea 
where he was alone at home knowing what his wife was doing. They have three children. Now the word is quite clear that one of them, the firstborn, is Hosea's. The paternity of the other two is thrown into a bit of question. Many believed that they weren't Hosea's, and yet he would raise them as his own. And because his wife was out of the home and continuing in her own ways, you understand the, that the life he lived was one of single parenthood, basically. And it gets so bad. We get to chapter three. It gets so bad that we hear that basically Goma has now actually abandoned her family abandoned her husband, abandoned her children. She is living in the house of another man. She has actually got so bad that she's been sold into the sex trade and now has basically a ancient pimp who owns her. She's in the possession of another man. And at the end of chapter three, God will tell Hosea that the wife who has abandoned you, the wife who has been unfaithful, the one who is in the possession of another man, you will go and buy her back. He doesn't have enough money at that time, uh, to buy a slave, the going rate was 30 pieces of shekels, uh, 30 shekels of silver, sorry. 30 pieces of, uh, of silver, they were called shekels. He only had 15. And so God pushes it a step further and says, go into your barley grain, your barley store and make up the rest, get 15 shekels worth and go buy her back. I think we forget the reality of the situation. And God takes it a step further because he will explain, you are my picture. Because the truth is, this is the story of me and my people. You will be the faithful husband having the unfaithful wife. I will be the faithful husband having the unfaithful wife being my people. God's heart in this moment is put on, in, in, we get into a Zoom focus in terms of God's heart. Understanding the depth of his hurt. Understanding that he did know and was having to witness the unfaithfulness of his people, of his bride, of his chosen people, the ones he cared for, the ones he loved, the ones he protected. And what he's doing in this moment, and I wanna bring it into kind of some of the historical context where we find the book of Hosea playing, is he's actually having a last ditch effort at calling Israel back, at calling his unfaithful wife back, because what will come now after this rebellion and this sin is the consequence. Uh, at the beginning of the Minor Prophets, we put up this timeline, I'm gonna put it up again for you. After King David and King Solomon, we see a split in the kingdoms, a split in the nation of Israel. Uh, in the Southern Kingdom, you had Judah. In the Northern Kingdom, you had the Kingdom of Israel, and it went down a road of really hardcore rebellion. Hosea is actually right in the midst, just before they would be taken over by the Assyrian Empire just before the destruction of the, uh, of the northern kingdom comes. It actually was uh, probably in the 30 years before, Hosea would actually live his life right through that destruction and even witness it. And this is his last ditch effort. This is God's message to his people, saying if you go any further, your kingdom will be no more. The punishment for what you have done will come. And the northern kingdom would be taken into exile and they would never return. The Assyrians would become their rulers. And it's through this unforgettable family, this family of Hosea, through his marriage and his children, that we get a picture of God's message to Israel at this time. I wanna take a, a, a deeper look at some of the, the characters in this family. The first one I wanna look at is the bride, and I've called this headline, the forgetful bride. Hosea has a wife, Gomer, 
She is a prostitute, she is unfaithful. But I also believe that she was quite forgetful, forgetful in what she had committed to in her marriage. God would also have a wife. God actually would build a, what is called a covenant relationship with the nation of Israel. It was actually a marriage. The basis, the foundation of it was a covenant. And covenant goes a step further. So often in our human thinking, we can go into contract where we believe, hey, this is my part, that's your part. If you don't do your part, I'm off the hook. Covenant is such a deep commitment that it goes far beyond that. Because covenant says, I will commit to you no matter what. I will be faithful to what I have, I've committed to even when you're not. And so we find the covenant made between God and his people, and he is the husband and they are the wife. So what did the bride forget about marriage? I think there's a couple of things. The first thing I believe they forgot was that relationship is always God-defined. They were starting to define the relationship on their own terms. There was a moment in history, there was a moment where there was actually the marriage ceremony, the I do's, if you would, where the covenant was made, where actually both sides, God and Israel, knew what they were committing to and they committed. And you find it in Exodus chapter 19. It's a very famous passage in the second book of the Bible, uh, led by Moses, a great leader of the people of Israel, who actually establishes the law, the covenant between God and man. And in Exodus 19 at Mount Sinai, this is what happens as the Old Testament covenant is made. In verse five, it says, now therefore, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, you shall be my treasured possession among all the peoples, for all the earth is mine. And you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. And these are the words that you shall speak to the people of Israel. So Moses came and called the elders of the people and set, them before, set before them all these words that the Lord had commanded him. All the people answered together and said, all that the Lord has spoken, we will do. The covenant is made and the covenant will be broken. God will commit, God will covenant with his people. The people will covenant with God, but they will go their own way. They will define the relationship on their own terms. And we see it generation after generation after generation, and we are now at the end of it before destruction is about to come, where they would follow other gods, where they would make their own way, where they would reference their own control. You get to Hosea chapter four, and this is where we, we get to the end of Hosea and Gomer's story. And God will begin to speak to his people and really flesh out what he is trying to communicate through uh, the picture of Hosea and Gomer. And chapter four really is the, the, the beginning. It's really the indictment, the charge sheet, the evidence given by God calling out Israel's unfaithfulness. Last week as we ended Micah, James looked at hope for the guilty. This was the moment where the guilty would be called out. This is what it says in the first verse of chapter four. Hear the word of the Lord, O children of Israel, for the Lord has a controversy with the inhabitants of the land. There is no faithfulness or steadfast love and no knowledge of God in the land. There is swearing, lying, murder, stealing, committing adultery. They break all bounds and bloodshed follows bloodshed. God will indict the people, call them out on their unfaithfulness, call them out on going their own way, on defining the relationship for themselves and not allowing God to define it as he, in, as he had done in the beginning. 
And the good news for us today and the significance for us today is that God to this day still gets to define the relationship. Because so often when we look at the Old Testament covenant and then we see it come out in the New Testament covenant as it's established by Jesus, we actually, it's the reason Jesus at the Last Supper will say, this is a new covenant that I make with you by my blood for the forgiveness of your sins. The beauty is that the, the relationship still gets defined by God himself because now the relationship in the new covenant is defined by Jesus, is defined by his sacrifice, is defined by his blood. It's actually where the moment that a human heart that is wayward a human heart that is far from God can be brought in close. It's a relationship that's defined by God alone. Second thing that the, I, I believe the bride had forgotten about marriage was that worship must be two things. It must be God-directed and it must be God-motivated. He carries on in Hosea of chapter 4 in verse 12 and says, My people inquire of a piece of wood and their walking staff gives them oracles. For a spirit of whoredom has led them astray, and they have left their God to play the whole. They got it wrong on two accounts. They had forgotten it on two, uh, two, two uh, battlefields. The first one is that they had put uh, location above direction. We were created to worship. You and me, as we were built, as we were wired by God, innately in us, there is this desire to worship something and someone. And so often what Israel did was worship themselves instead of God as it had been planned, as they had covenanted to. Israel had soured their worship because what they had begun to do was mix in the pagan culture and the pagan worships that were around them at the time. The pagan god of that day was a guy called Baal. Baal worship had entered into the people of God and the places of God. And the problem was that the big danger that Israel had uh, missed was that they felt that they were right. They felt that they were in true worship of God. They actually felt that they were the ones who were in the right space. And it's because they found themselves in the high places in Israel. Literally, they would worship at Gilgal. It was the center of the worship of Yahweh. They found themselves in places like Bethel, Bethel means uh, the house of the Lord, the house of Elohim. It literally was the place of God, the place of Yahweh. And yet, because they had mixed in these other cultures, these other pra practices, actually, uh, we find out later in Hosea that they were at this stage even using God's name and the name of Baal interchangeably, as if they were the same. The danger they had fallen into and the big warning to us is that the location of our worship on its own means very little. The direction of our worship is far more important. They found themselves in the high places. They found themselves in the spaces where their ancestors, where their forefathers, where those who were in their heritage of, God's, uh, of God honoring and God following, and yet they had mixed in, and it's a big theological word known as syncretism, where they would mix in these other practices. They had missed out. And the question we should be asking ourselves is where is my worship focused? Not where is my worship located, 
Because the truth is, and the danger and the, the, the big trap we can fall into is we can log onto the stream every single week. We can be in church. We can be around Christians. We can not, never miss a city group, but our location is far less important if our worship is directed in the wrong place. Is our worship and our focus and our attention on God Himself. Look at where Israel's worship was directed. My people inquire of a piece of wood. Their focus, their attention, their perspective, it was directed at idols. It was directed at statues. It wasn't directed at their God in heaven. Second thing that they fall into is in the very next verse. It says they sacrifice on top of mountains and burn offerings on the hills under oak, poplar, and terebinth because their shade is good. That's important. Therefore, your daughters play the whole and your brides commit adultery. They think it's true worship, but it's false worship. The second thing they had missed was they forgot that motivation must always trump blessing. In the covenant with God, Israel will serve God. They'll serve Him alone, and in turn, they will be His treasured possession. And so they'll be under His uh, care, His provision, His protection. Now, don't get me wrong. I've preached on this before. The road of blessing is always paved with bricks of obedience. But true worship is never simply black and white, obedience, disobedience. The motivation, what's going on behind the scene matters. It's not just about doing the act. It's about your heart in the midst of it. And God will call them out for their false worship, for their false motivation, trying to get a hold of the blessing by doing the things. And yet where there was any sliver of comfort, they would take it. It's why he calls them out and says, you will sacrifice under these trees because the shade is good. You don't sacrifice these things because you're trying to worship me. You're sacrificing these things to tick the box to do what is so-called right in terms of true worship because your focus actually is the blessing that what you think will come with that. But any moment where you can get some comfort, any moment where you can just focus and put control and comfort ahead of worship of me, you do it because the shade there is good. Israel would sacrifice. They would do what was right. God let the record show I was here and I did it but he calls them out for their false worship. And the challenge to us is this, if the quality of our worship is measured by how we feel and not the devotion and the love for God that we have, have we missed it? If our worship, if, our, if we walk away from a gathering or a city group and our first question is, okay, what did that do for me? and not what did God say to me, speak to me, call on me, change in me, then maybe we've missed it. If we walk away saying, God, would you bless us before we have even blessed his name in worship, have we missed it? Israel were chasing the blessing. They were chasing comfort. They were chasing control. They weren't chasing the God who loved them. They had fallen into the trap of using God like that cosmic vending machine. Let me put in my worship and get out the blessing. Third thing the bride had forgotten was that faithfulness is all or nothing. I'll give you this example. Myself and my wife Nikita have been married now for just over five years. Luckily, Nikita has got a faithful husband. 
But just for a moment, imagine you were having a conversation with Nikita and you were asking, hey, how's your marriage going? How's the, and she was like, yeah, you know, it's good. Is Duncan a faithful husband? Imagine her answer was this. He is totally a, a faithful husband. I mean, take last year, for example, 2020. He only cheated on me two times. 365 days, he had so many chances, but he only did it twice. So he's faithful. No sane person would ever answer that. Because when it comes to faithfulness, we know it's not graded on a scale. We know that it's not graded on a curve. If it's broken once, it's broken. There's no half obedience, there's no half faithfulness, there's no 75%, there's no 99%. There's all or nothing. And I know some people, maybe if you're new to this space, that might be something, um, as you try to get your head and your heart around it, it's difficult. Because it seems like that God is calling for this faithfulness and this obedience, and He's calling for perfection. And that seems dry. That actually seems like He is just this rule maker, and He's actually just calling and asking too much of us. And if you fall into the same trap that Israel did, where you put religion over relationship, I understand where you're going. But when you understand all of this in the context of relationship, when you understand faithfulness and the call and expectation of God on us for faithfulness to Him, in the context of relationship, it makes sense. Even something as simple as don't cheat. In religion, seems like it's restrictive, it's holding me back, it's trying to lock me down. But in the context of relationship, it's very different. Because the expectation of faithfulness in a marriage is not something that's a rule that's restrictive. It's motivated by the love and the commitment to the other. And it's so funny that, when we un- that we can understand that in the context of a relationship, we can understand that in the context of a marriage. And yet when it gets applied to God and His expectation of us, and that He actually desires faithfulness from us, we come unstuck. We've missed the mark. We've forgotten that faithfulness is all or nothing. And that the faithfulness we, God calls from us, He knows we can't give Him. And it's why He actually will empower us to be faithful in this covenant. I wanna give us a couple of practical handles and just some thoughts I had. If God is this faithful husband, if uh, we as the people of God are this unfaithful wife, if Hosea was the faithful husband and Gomer was the unfaithful wife, you get to the moment where things get at their worst. Goma has literally abandoned her family. She is in the house of another man, in the possession of another man, probably not even wanting to come back. It's in that moment where I suddenly, and I joked with the preaching team about this, could you imagine that married couple walking into Vaughan's office for some pastoral care, walking into Vaughan's office for some marital counseling? Uh, I know, and I'll shout out to Vaughan in the comments, Vaughan is an absolute machine. If there's someone you want to get counseling you, it's Vaughn. But as much as Vaughn is great, as big and as he is, I imagine if that married couple walked into Vaughn's office, even Vaughno would say, I think this one's done, guys. I think we need to give up on this one. We've given it a good go. She's out of the house. She has abandoned. She's run away. She's in the possession of someone else. She probably doesn't even want to come back. This thing's done. And yet in that moment, God's word to Hosea is go buy her back. God, she might not even want to come back. Go buy her back. 
because my unfaithful wife will be bought back by me. It's so funny that even Hosea, who is in lack, didn't have enough to buy her back. We forget that God had the means to buy our freedom. And it was the greatest price all of humanity, all of history has ever seen because it was his only son. The question for us, and I know so many of us have got different families that look different, that have been through different things. But the question that was just going through my mind as I read this, and God's heart to buy back, God's heart to restore, God's heart to put up with the faithful unfaithfulness and meet it with great love. It challenged me saying, well, how do we love those in our family that are hard to love? How do we act with the one in our family who isn't acting like they're in the family? How do we respond to the one in our family who doesn't even really want to be in the family? Do we give up on them or do we call them back with love? Because God does that with us. I think about the moments where I wanted to go my own way, where I wanted to be the one in control. And I wonder what if God had given up on me? What if God had given up on you? Because through all that unfaithfulness, God still says, go buy her back. She's mine. Third thing I wanna look at, and this is our last headline. I wanna look at the forgetful children. We got into some of those crazy names of Hosea's children. There was three, and each of them would represent a very specific and hectic judgment against the nation of Israel. The first was Jezreel. And Jezreel actually uh, has two meanings. It's the valley of Jezreel, the actual geographic location within the Northern Kingdom, but it also means God will sow. And basically through it, he's saying God will sow judgment and God will sow uh, restoration, but understand that with the judgment, punishment will come. He actually calls out and uh, the king of the Northern Kingdom at that time, uh, Jeroboam, basically saying, hey, your reign will end because of what your ancestor did. He mentions Jehu, which was an ancestor of the king of the time. And he says, hey, because of the sin that was committed there in the valley of Jezreel, I will now sow destruction. That because of that, there will be a consequence in your reign, your dynasty will end. Second, the second is a daughter named No Mercy. God will say, I, don't, I will not have mercy on the northern kingdom for the rebellion and the sin that they have got uh, and unfaithfulness they have against me. And so he will say, I will have no mercy and I will let the Assyrians take them over. The third, not my people. He says, you act like you aren't. And the truth is, I am not your God. And if I am not your God, well, then you cannot be my people. Some of the most hectic judgments, some of the darkest judgments God's, God will throw out against his people. But I, I told you at the beginning of the story that this is a story of God's great love. So how in the midst of all that judgment, in all that punishment, in, those, in that dark, darkness of those judgments, how do we find God's love in it? I wanna just give you a quick overarching view. Through these 14 chapters of Hosea, 
You will find 19 times a reference to the prostitution and the unfaithfulness of Israel. But 19 times you will find God calling His people to acknowledge Him, to serve Him. And so for every time that they would fall, every single time that they would go their own way, He calls them back, matches it like for like. And the heart behind it gets mentioned 15 times. It says that He will woo them back with His loving kindness. God is just. He will be the judge. He will let the punishment come. But understand His heart is to woo us back in His loving kindness. And as He looks at His people and says, you're not my people anymore. Over 14 chapters, I just want to highlight, 96 times He'll refer to His people by name. He will say, I have no mercy on the north, but I will have mercy on Judah because there is a plan that I am putting in place to bring redemption to this world. And it will go far beyond just the Jewish nation of Israel. It will go to all humanity. I called this point the forgetful children because I believe as you look at the children of God, you will find that they had forgotten some things about the Father. So what did they forget about the Father? First thing, they had forgotten that with no lordship, there can be no salvation. The destruction by the Assyrian Empire is on the way. Chapter 11, actually, God will say this. But Assyria shall be their king because they have refused to return to me. And the truth and the point God is trying to make to his people in this is that God cannot be savior if he is not in charge. We can't have one without the other. Because us as humans, in our human heart, we are all about control. And so often we want to take the control on ourselves. We want to be the one in the driving seat. And yet so many times we watch that lead us down a road of destruction. And it's because when we put ourselves in the driving seat, God says, I am now no longer in charge. And if I am not in charge, understand I can't be the one to save you. The northern kingdom had said, we're on our own. We were going our own way and God said, there's nothing I can do. And so this is what will happen. They would be destroyed. They would be taken into exile and the Northern Kingdom would never be established again. So often when we take that control and it leads us down these roads of path, uh, these roads of pain and suffering, we forget that actually the greatest freedom a human heart can get is to release control to give it over to God. Because now when we give that over, it's not about us. It's not about our skill, our power. Actually, our destination, our protection, our provision is now not based on us. We don't have to well it up within our skill set. We don't have to well it up within our resource base. We get to actually have the King of Heaven do it. And so He is the one who is in control. And we find our hearts in the, in the perfect set, uh, setting of God's freedom. Second thing and the last thing, that the children of God had forgotten was that their dad is not fair and that's awesome. I mentioned earlier, if you looked at that couple, Hosea and Goma at their worst, literally in the midst of an unfaithful wife abandoning her family, any normal sane person would look at that and say, give up, it's done. That would be the fair response. No one would call out Hosea for that. And yet, God in the same position looks at his unfaithful wife and says, buy her back. 
God isn't fair. I've preached on this before. It gets me excited because He is no normal man. He does not see it in the natural sense like we do. He sees it in the supernatural sense because He's actually empowered by His love. Bible says God is love. It is literally built into His existence. This is what it says in Hosea chapter 11. Listen to God's heart for His people. In verse eight, He says, how can I give up on you, O Ephraim? How can I hand you over, O Israel? How can I make you like Adma? How can I treat you like Zebum? My heart recoils within me. My compassion grows warm and tender. I will not execute my burning anger. I will not again destroy Ephraim, for I am God and not a man, the Holy One in your midst, and I will not come in wrath. It is good news that God's not fair. It's good news that He doesn't respond in the way that we would. It's good news that He is about love, that He is about restoration. And He doesn't just have a desire for it. He is the only one who has the means to bring it about. He isn't 15 shekels short. He has it all within Him. And He offers it up to us, calling us back, wooing our hearts back to Him for restoration. I wanna end with this before we take communion together so you can get that ready. I love the end of Hosea chapter two. God has laid out the darkness of this story, but He ends with this hope and He ends with a declaration of the restoration that will come to His people. He says this in verse 21, and in that day I will answer, declares the Lord, I will answer the heavens and they shall answer the earth, and the earth shall answer the grain, the wine, and the oil, and they shall answer Jezreel. And I will sow her for myself in the land, and I will have mercy on no mercy. And I will say to not my people, you are my people. And he shall say, you are my God. In the darkness, in the brokenness, in the judgment, we see God meeting his people with grace with love, with restoration. When the children forget, they forget that they have a loving Father. They forget that the loving Father has, his, has their best in mind. That actually He is the only one powerful enough to rescue them from the destruction they've brought upon themselves. As we come to communion right now, there's two big things that I think Hosea would speak to us as we remember what Jesus did. Communion's a moment where we get to remember the sacrifice of Jesus. And the story of Hosea is one of deep brokenness being met with restoration, being met with God's love. And isn't that the story of Jesus walking to that cross, dying the death that He did for us so that we can know His righteousness even in the midst of our unrighteousness. Knowing that God chooses an unfaithful people because He is an, a faithful God. Knowing that He holds up His end of the bargain, even when we don't, even when we fail. I wanna remind you, Israel had forgotten that with no Lordship, there can be no salvation. This is a meal, and it's a meal for those who have given Lordship over to Jesus. And I wanna encourage you, that invitation is open to you today. And you may have never taken communion before. This could be your first time. 
but it could be in the context of Jesus being your Lord, of you relinquishing control. So that salvation can be the gift that you receive from Jesus. The last phrase there is, not my people will respond and he shall say you are my God. I'm gonna encourage you, if you're on the stream right now and the cry of your heart is you are my God, you can take that step right now. We would love to help you take that step. If, if you need us to assist you with that, if you wanna connect with us on that, why not let us know in the comments or you can email us at hello at, God, at, God, at citygodfirst.co.za. This is a moment where that invitation is given out. But the second thing that I was so struck by coming into communion off of the story of Hosea was that this is a celebration of restoration. It's a celebration of that which was broken being made whole. That which was old and decrepit and couldn't save itself now being made new in Jesus. And on this Mandela Day, with the week that South Africa has had, I wanna say, at a time in South Africa where we have seen the chaos and the violence of this week alone, at a time in South Africa where opinions are very high, where fear is very high, where stress is very high, where emotions are very high, can we agree on this? Can we unite on this? Because everyone's got a potential solution. But can we agree that the problem we have is a deep, deep brokenness? We see broken individuals. We see a nation that is suffering from brokenness and is in need of restoration. And as we come to this meal, as we remember the celebration of God's restoration of us as His people, I wanna encourage you, join me in praying for the restoration of our country. Join me in praying for the restoration of individuals because Everyone can have their opinion. Everyone can say what the problem is and give a potential solution. But I want to tell you, God's Word is very clear. There's only one solution, and it's Jesus Himself. It's the power of Jesus to change a human heart. It's the power of Jesus to reconcile not just us and God, but even us with each other. On the night Jesus was betrayed, the Last Supper, he was with his disciples and he took the cup and it was a meal they had had so many times, but this time would be different because this time it was the culmination of the restoration plan. He was giving them the blueprint of what was about to happen. And so he took the bread that was on the table and he said, you guys aren't gonna quite get this right now, but you'll get it after this. So do this in remembrance of me. He took the bread and said that that would be my body and that it would be broken for each and every one of us. That that would be a sacrifice where the unrighteousness of us as a people would be put on Jesus so that His righteousness could be transferred to us. If you've got a piece of bread, a cracker, whatever you've got, I'd encourage you to grab it right now. We're gonna take and eat and remember that body that was broken for us. He also took the cup and he said, this thing goes far beyond my body because it also will need to take my blood. 
in the same way that Gomer had to be bought back because there was a debt, there was a price. She was in the possession of another man. I'm gonna have to buy you back. I'm gonna have to buy you back from the evil one because of the sin and the rebellion that you have sown that has led to the destruction of you as a people. But I will be the one to buy you back and I will use my very own blood, the most precious thing in all of eternity. And so he took the cup and he said, drink and remember and celebrate the sacrifice that you have been bought back, that the debt has been paid and that now you who weren't my people can be called my people. I said, this is a celebration of restoration. And I don't want you to miss that it is a celebration because as I pray and we get ready to sing, I wanna encourage your heart right now. I wanna put courage into your heart. This is a week where fear has got a grip of us. And the only thing that's gonna loosen that grip, the only thing that will banish that is understanding God's love. Because perfect love casts out fear. And so as we pray, as our heart is encouraged, as the love of God washes over us, as we sing about the love of God, I wanna encourage you. Fear is not the answer. Fear is not the reality that we have to sit with because God is in control. He's the one who buys us back. He's the one who corrects it. He's the one who calls us by name. Father God, as we a people have been bought back, as we have had your mercy extended to us, your grace extended to us, as you have literally changed everything about our lives, our hearts, our minds. Lord, it's my prayer right now that for those in the grips of fear, for those in the grips of going down their own way, that Lord, we would hand over control to you again, knowing that you are the one who is in control, that you are the one who is faithful even in the midst of our faithlessness. And you, the faithful one, doesn't fail. Lord, you're the one who wins. You're the one who is all powerful. And so we look to you right now in this moment. Would you put courage in us? Would your truth wash over us? Would your peace wash over us? But most of all, Lord, we pray that you would restore us again, that you would restore our hearts, our, uh, us as individuals, that you would restore our nation that you would restore our leaders, that you would restore every single sphere of society. Lord, we have seen people moved at a heart level to care for their fellow man. Lord, what can the power of love do in the midst of this situation? What can the power of your gospel, your love, your heart, your truth do in the midst of this situation? Lord, would we be the, the carriers of it? Would we be the ones who carry it into the next week, the next few weeks, the next few months? Because God, you will do a restoration work in this country and in us. We look to you, we love you. We give it all over to you. Lord, we worship you, we honour you. Our worship is directed to you. Our, our focus is directed to you. Our perspective will be your perspective. Our words will be your words. Our heart will be your heart. Let's sing together and worship.